Today we are going to be closing out our series through 1 Peter. Now if you're just joining us for the first time, we have been on a journey over the past few months looking at this letter, this epistle written by the ancient missionary and apostle extraordinaire Peter to a group of scattered and struggling Christians in the first century. It has helped us an immense amount and it will help us again today. Let's pray for the Spirit's help and we'll get right to work. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We ask that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. All right, so we will be picking up in 1 Peter 5, <coughs> beginning in verse 6. And what we will see here is that Peter begins right where he left off in his train of thought last week. He was talking about humility. He was talking about the need for younger congregants to humble themselves so that there might be unity in the church. And he expands that idea right here in verse 6 when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, some may translate this as allow yourself to be humbled. And the idea here is <clears throat> in the midst of all this suffering that you're enduring, God has a plan. God has a purpose, but you're going to get the most out of it. And it's going to have its greatest effect if you don't war against God in the midst of it. But instead, you humble yourself before God in the midst of it. And this phrase here, the mighty hand of God, is uh, something that was used time and time again in the Old Testament. It symbolizes both discipline and deliverance. <clears throat> and both of those would have been uh, appropriate in this conversation that he was having with these struggling Christians. And the payoff for doing all of this, humbling yourself before the mighty hand of God, comes after this so that, it's an indicator of a purpose clause, that I'm commanding you to do this for the desired effect of this. And it says here <coughs> that that is, at the proper time, he may exalt you. Now, there's a little debate here on exactly what he's talking about. Is he talking about the end times, that that's the proper time? Certainly, he's used that uh, methodology of encouragement throughout the letter. Could be that he is doing that right here. But it also could be this kind of indeterminate time uh, in this life where he's saying, hey, humble yourself now. God's on it. He's watching. He will raise you up in some capacity in this life as well. And both of those are, are, are certainly true in the Christian life. So if you amalgamate this together, our first principle today is to humble ourselves before God so that he might lift us up. And listen. That is good counsel, both in general and in specific, because in general, <clears throat> the posture of humility is one that all Christians should walk in at all times. We should be seeking to be low before the Lord. We should be seeking to put others uh, in front of ourselves. We should be seeking to always put Jesus first. And when we do that, we are going to experience a greater sense of the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our lives. And as an additional benefit, God's going to use it to raise us up to do other things and to bless us in other ways that might not have been as apparently obvious uh, if we weren't walking in humility. Because God's primary focus throughout all of Scripture is His own glory and if he finds people that are not warring against him to try to steal that glory, 
then why wouldn't he bless them? Why wouldn't he be richly involved in their lives as a good and gracious father? So let's stop and ask our question here. What is your posture in regard to this principle? Are you seeking to humble yourself before the Lord? Are you seeking to go to that low place so that God in his own time can exalt you as he sees fit? If you are, keep it up. The Lord is with you. If you aren't, let this passage encourage you, let it challenge you, let it spur you on in the right direction because that's what God wanted for these ancient Christians so long ago and that's what he wants for us today. Now, let's move on to the second uh, principle that emerges to us from verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, you can sort of see this here in the English, but you can really see this in the Greek. What Peter is doing here, uh, you can pick up on this through the word casting, is that this is really one long kind of run-on sentence in the Greek. And what he's saying here is, part of the way you do the command in verse 6 to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God is by what he's commanding in verse 7, that this casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you, that is an exercise in humility because we are admitting to ourselves and to God, hey, listen, we can't do this on our own. We, we got to have some help. And then on top of that, <coughs> it also uh, gives us a wonderful principle in and of itself. And so that's our second point today. And that is that we should cast our cares upon God because he cares for us. So when he's talking about here, this, this verb here that he uses for casting, uh, it is a, it's a, it's a, <clears throat> it's a simple aorist actually. And what that's talking about is it's an act. It's something that we do. We see the same use of this verb over in Luke when it talks about casting a blanket upon a donkey. <clears throat> and the idea that he's driving forward here is we have these burdens. We have these cares. In this case, it was likely talking about uh, their persecution and all that went along with it. <clears throat> and so we are to bring those before the Lord and we are to cast them. We are to hurl them. We are to place them upon him. And what is the basis for that command? Because he cares for us. And listen, this is extremely important because it was entirely distinctive <clears throat> in the first century because uh, the greatest idea about God that Greek philosophy had to offer was that God could have perfect goodness, but the notion of Him deeply caring and being compassionate toward His creation to the point that He is inviting them to bring their burdens to Him, well, that would have been completely unheard of. And listen, isn't that also just a wonderful <coughs> truth for us to lay hold of today as well? Because so often we feel like we're on our own. So often we feel like we are struggling and <clears throat> we have nowhere to turn. And here we are reminded again in concrete language, listen, God knows, God cares. Let's go to him. Let's take our burdens. Let's cast them upon him and let's see what only he can do with them. So let's ask a question here. Is that the way that you view God? Someone who is infinitely glorious and exalted, and yet also intimately concerned about the minutia of your daily life. The little cares, the big cares, 
the little inconveniences, the big burdens. God cares about all of them. His heart is toward you and for you in Christ. And he is saying, come, bring those to me, cast them upon me. Friends, what a wonderful picture of the character of God in this way. Now, the second question I would ask is, first about posture, second about practice. Is this your practice? Or do you always try to say, hey, I got to figure this out on my own. I got to handle this on my own. Don't want to bother God. I'm sure he's busy keeping the cosmos going. Listen, we need to go to God and take our burdens and take our cares. We need to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. So let that motivate us today. Let that uh, inspire us today. Let that bring change in our lives today. And let's go to God and take our burdens to him. <clears throat> now, verse 8. And he takes an interesting turn here in verse 8 because he goes from talking about God and his compassion to talking about Satan and his deception and his destruction toward the believer. Look at verse 8. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, <coughs> prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So third principle here, watch out for and resist your enemy, the devil. Now we can tell this is important because look at the action verbs that he uses here to make this warning. He says, <clears throat> be sober-minded and be watchful. These are strong words. They don't mean, hey, just be on the lookout. They mean pay attention. You are walking next to something dangerous. You need to be on guard against it. And then he defines who that is, your adversary, the devil. And this is some interesting language too because the, the Greek word for adversary here is an opponent in a lawsuit. And when he talks about the devil, <coughs> he, he's talking about a slanderer someone who maliciously maligns the character of other people. And don't we know that that is part of how the enemy works? He comes to us, he whispers to us in our mind that we are not loved, that we are not worth anything to God or anybody else, all these lies. That's what he does. He comes along and tries to besmirch the character of the people of God so that they might flee from God and also be disabled and uh, unavailable for, for gospel use. That is not what the Lord wants. And so that's why he sent Peter with this message to warn them, to be on the lookout for him. <clears throat> and then in addition to that, uh, we need to also understand that the devil, he's not responsible for everything, but he is responsible for many things. <clears throat> now, the way we've always talked about it here is that the Christian has three enemies in this world. There's the world, there's the flesh, and there's the devil. And when we're talking about the devil here, uh, Wayne Grudem helps us see this. He could be responsible for many, many things in our lives. It could come from some of these accusations that we talked about. <coughs> he uh, can inspire people toward self-destructive behavior. Uh, he's a stubborn advocate for false doctrine. It can also be the sudden onslaught of fear uh, or depression or anxiety, violent anger, all these kinds of things. Those are the currency in which our enemy likes to run his economy. 
And so he brings all those things to bear in concert with the remaining sin that we have, the brokenness of the world, and he and his uh, demons, his, his minions, work against us using everything at their disposal. So it's no surprise that Peter would say, be sober-minded, be watchful against him. But also this language that he uses here, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, some people look at this and they see this as a nod to uh, what they would have seen in the first century where possibly even some of their uh, literal brothers and sisters, perhaps, are, are being devoured by lions at the Colosseum, so on and so forth. It depends on how you, how you date this and exactly what he's saying there. But this is definitely something that they would have been uh, aware of. And that imagery uh, really drives the point home. I don't know if you've ever been to the zoo, but you've ever uh, or, or maybe seen some of those videos that are produced where you, you just see these lions that will pace back and forth and they will they will watch you and your kids. Uh, I remember when we used to live in Louisville, this wasn't a lion, but it was a, a, a very large mountain lion that when we and our small children would walk up and of course there's you know quite a distance there and all this you know electric razor wire to keep the cat away from you. But we'd be standing there with our kids and this thing would pace back and forth at the edge of its cage and you could hear it growling and you could you could almost see inside the cat's mind. This thing is plotting. It is trying right now in this moment to figure out how can I get through these wires and attack and eat all of these small children. I mean, that was a crazy experience. Uh, and it really drives forth or drives home this imagery that he's using here, that this is that the devil is on the lookout for uh, for Christians that he can devour. And I, I think the, the Christian community often falls into two equal and opposite errors when it comes to thinking about the devil. You kind of have the one crew where there's a demon behind every bush. Uh, very little emphasis on personal responsibility and good habits and so on. The devil is responsible for everything. That's kind of on this side. On the other side, uh, the kind of the more theologically minded crowd sometimes is guilty of this. Well, the devil doesn't get any press at all. It's all about sin. It's all about the fallen world. And the answer is somewhere between those two. Uh, he's not responsible for everything, but he is responsible for plenty of things. So again, be sober-minded, be watchful, uh, know who he is, know how he works, know, uh, uh, know what he's up to. And then also remember, he's on the lookout for you. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But here's the good news in the midst of all this. Though we need to be aware of him, we do not need to be afraid of him. We need to be aware of him, but we don't need to be afraid of him. He's certainly not as powerful as God. Uh, anything that the devil uh, tries to do it is still somehow subject to the sovereignty of God. You see that in the book of Job where he has to ask permission to sift Job. Uh, you see that within, in Peter's own life here. Uh, and, and you think about this, that this is not like a boxing match where God and Satan are equals. No, God is in complete sovereign control. But the devil is very real, and he causes a ton of trouble. Which leads to verse 9, where Peter gives us somewhat of a strategy 
to, to deal with him. What does he say? He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that uh, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So he's actually given kind of a two-pronged <coughs> approach there that will help us. So let's take the first one first. This, the word resist him means it means to stand up against. And I don't think that means that you have to have these like special phrases and incarnations and incantations to, you know, put the devil back, so to speak. Um, but I do think the way I like to think about this <coughs> is there's kind of a, a general resistance and then there is a uh, specific resistance. And on the general side, that means doing all the things that we know we need to do as Christians. This is what Paul is talking about, putting on the whole armor of God <coughs> over in Ephesians 6, that we need to be walking with God, we need to be praying, we need to be walking in close community with other Christians, not just I'm going to pop in and out when it's convenient, but close community with other Christians. Uh, we need to be walking away from sin, we need to be walking toward Christ, uh, we need to have appropriate safeguards in our lives, all those things that cultivate a robust and healthy relationship with God. That is the general resistance against what Satan is trying to do. But then there's also specific resistance, because if you're doing all those things in the general category, you're still going to have specific times where Satan attacks you. And, he, and it isn't the fallen world. And it isn't simply, oh, I screwed up. There is supernatural evil coming against you. The, the way we kind of sort this out at our house is we try to operate in this general category as much as we can. And then there are sometimes, if there's an argument or something it's kind of weird going on, sometimes I'll just step back and say, hey, I think there's, I think there's something else going on here. There's an unusual amount of miscommunication. There's an unusual amount of uh, bickering and hostility. Something else is going on here. And many times we will stop and we will just pray against that and, and resist the devil in this sense. And what that usually looks like is I will just say, Lord, we sense there's something going on here. We uh, plead the blood of Christ in this specific situation, and we ask that you would show up strongly uh, on our behalf, and you would send this darkness to flight and get us back on track uh, following you. So again, it's not uh, specific words or incantations. It is going to God, just like Peter says here. It's also almost exactly what James says in his letter, uh, resist the devil and he will flee. And standing uh, on the word of God uh, with prayer to God in the midst of those moments of attack. Uh, if you want an illustration of how to think about this, I think about it like your immune system. Okay. You have a general immune system that is cultivated and made healthy by doing all the things that you know you need to do. Uh, not eating too much, exercising, trying to get down to a healthy weight, um, eating the right kinds of foods, trying to eat as clean as you can. On top of that, uh, taking supplements, exercising, uh, doing all those things, getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, all those things that you hear blogs about and your doctor told you and all those things that we know that cultivate a healthy immune system. Generally, 
that when you come in tr- uh, contact with pathogens throughout the year, uh, with a few exceptions of colds and flus and all that kind of stuff, you, you generally move forward in a pretty good direction. But there are specific times when you do get sick and you do need medical intervention and you do need specific medicines and so on and so forth. It's the same kind of Sorry. thing here with the, uh, with the spirituality that we're discussing. There is a uh, general baseline that we need to, to keep us strong, uh, to resist, and then when the specific things pop up, uh, we need those specific uh, interventions uh, through prayer and so on as well. All right, so let's ask a couple questions here. Number one, do you have the right posture toward the enemy? And I mean this in a few different ways. You don't need to be walking around being afraid of him, but you do need to be aware of him. You don't need to blame him for everything, but you do need to know that he is responsible for some things. Do you have the right balance? Do you have the right posture? Do you have the right biblical understanding? The second question is, what about your personal strategy for resistance? Okay. Now, when we're talking about resistance, remember two categories. The general is your baseline spirituality healthy. Are you moving in the right direction there? And then also specifically when those things pop up, do you know how to handle them through prayer and through specific scripture uh, and so on and so forth? If not, we'd love to help. We'd love to encourage in any and all of those ways. And also we would want to encourage you that the second piece of truth that Peter gives at the end of this, after he talks specifically about the devil, is also going to be helpful. Look back at it. What does he say here? He says, knowing, so resist and firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced throughout the brotherhood, throughout the world. And what he's getting at there is he's telling these Christians that doubtlessly at times have felt like, oh my gosh, we're the only people being persecuted. We're the only people struggling and suffering. And Peter says, no, you're not. And there's something about the human condition that just knowing that we are not the only ones going through something, that our pain, that our suffering, uh, that if, it, if it's meant in the immediate context here of spiritual attack from the enemy, that none of those things are unique to us. And knowing where we stand now, a couple thousand years from when Peter wrote this, that there's been 2,000 years of Christians that have somehow trusted God and been faithful and carried the flag to get us where we are, that just helps. That's an encouragement. We are not alone in any sense of the word. We're not alone because the Spirit is with us. We're not alone because this local church is with us. And in this case, we're not alone because all Christians at all times have suffered. They will suffer. It's just part and parcel of living in this world. So if you do feel alone today, you need to punt that lie. You are not. God is with you. The church is with you. Your brothers and sisters around the world are with you. And we are in this together. Now, that being said... Let's come on to the home stretch here with verse 10, and I want to give us our fourth and final principle that comes from verses 10 and 11. Let's look at it. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the fourth and final principle is, Suffering is temporary. 
but God and His help are forever. Suffering is temporary, but God and His help are forever. Let's dig into it. And after you have suffered a little while. Now, Peter's making this kind of indeterminate statement here. He's just saying, hey, I know you're going through it. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to last. You know, this could be a statement about all of life. In either case, he's talking about the, the finite nature of the suffering here and the infinite nature of that which is to come. And the way that he talks about this, look at how he describes God. Of all the things he could have said, he says, the God of all grace. Isn't that a wonderful picture of God? That of all the grace that is available, God has got it. And He wants to give it to us. And He wants to give it to suffering and struggling Christians. Here it is. Take it. And then on top of that, He does what He's done so many times. He said, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. So he is, He's using this eschatological, this end times hope. He's saying, listen, you're suffering now, but there's a day coming where there will be no suffering at all. And God has called you to that. So hook your anchor to that. And as your ship goes up and down here on the stormy sea of suffering, you will be helped and pulled forward out of this storm because God has got you forever. And then he uses these verbs. There's four verbs here. Uh, And he says, uh, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The first verb, restore, in other places is translated mend. Uh, it's, it's the word that Jesus, or that is used when Jesus approaches his disciples and he finds them mending their nets. And so it's interesting that Peter, the fisherman, would use that verb here. And, it, and what he's saying here is listen, man, God knows that life is hard. God knows that it is tearing your proverbial net just to be here and to be suffering. And one day God is going to fix that. You are going to have a body that never gets sick and you never have to worry about any kind of random anything. And God is going to fix everything that is broken about you. Isn't that wonderful hope? And then in addition to that, he says he's going to confirm. And that means that you're going to stand up on your own two feet. That you're going to be able to stand in all those areas that you feel weak and insecure and not put together. And that there's no hope. God is going to fix all that. And then in addition to that, he says he's going to strengthen and establish. And this is fascinating because these verbs are architectural in nature. And so this seems to be piggyback or at least echoing Peter's earlier teaching about us being built into a spiritual house before God. So this work that is happening is happening on multiple levels. It's like he's mending us like a net. He's helping us stand up and he's putting us together and we're going to be put together together as a people. So all of these things point to what only God can do. He is the God of all grace. He is the God who can do all of this. No one else can do this. And listen, there's a lot of great help that is available to us in this world through the common grace of God. There's wonderful doctors that we can go see, but they can only help us to a degree. There's wonderful financial planners that we can sit down with, and there's wonderful financial teaching that can help us get prepared for retirement and get on a budget. All that stuff is wonderful, but it's not forever. 
You can go get counseling that can help you repair your marriage, help you work with your children, help you just deal with your own eternal issues. All of that is wonderful and needful, but it's not forever. And what the God of all grace has to offer us is all of that times 10,000. All of that to the nth degree. All of that forever. And so what Peter is saying to them and what Peter is saying to us is you need to come to that God of all grace. You need to humble yourself before him so that he can lift you up. You need to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You need to be watchful and sober-minded and looking out for the enemy, but you need to know that your God is so much stronger and here's how you can deal with him. And you need to know ultimately that there is a day coming where everything that is broken will be fixed and everything that is sad will come untrue. Doesn't that give you hope this morning? Don't you just hear the echoes of a wonderful faraway country this morning? I do. And it is this kind of gospel hope that leads us toward our Redeemer, doesn't it? Because if we want to live in light of any of this, how in the world are we going to do this? We got to have Jesus. We have to have a personal relationship with Jesus, not some abject, I've heard about him, I know about him. We need to know him personally. And for some of you, that strikes a chord because you've never met him. And today needs to be the day of salvation for you. You need to admit that you're a sinner. You need to believe in Jesus, his perfect life, his substitutes death, his glorious resurrection. And you need to commit your life to him. And if that is stirring in your heart this morning, then you need to pray and ask him to save you and reach out to us. We want to help you as you've begun your new spiritual journey. Now, for those of us who do know him in a personal way, friends, how could we do any of this apart from Christ? We can't. But let me give you some wonderful news. We don't have to. See, Jesus is both our example and our empowerment for what we're talking about here today. You want to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God so that you might be lifted up? You look to the ultimate one who humbled himself in a way that none of us could understand. And what did God do? He lifted him up. Jesus went down and has now been lifted up. He went low and has been made high. Jesus can help us in the similar way. In addition to that, we think about casting our cares upon God. Who better to look to than Jesus himself as an example? With all the resources that he had available, Mark chapter 1 tells us that he still drew aside early in the morning and he prayed. You look at him coming onto the home stretch in his own life in the Garden of Gethsemane. What happens there? He draws aside and he prays. He casts his cares upon God because he knew that his father cared for him. Friends, we need that example and we need that empowerment by his spirit to be drawn in a similar fashion. In addition to that, you think about how Jesus resisted the devil 
throughout his entire life for sure, but Luke chapter 4 in particular, when he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, all these different ways, all these different temptations. And what did Jesus do? He resisted the devil just like we've been taught to do in this passage. And he emerged victorious. And because of his victory, we can now have victory as well. And finally, how in the world could God do what he says that he's going to do here? How can he be the God of all grace? Because he gave Jesus for us. He showed it. He proved it. Jesus paid for us with his own blood. And so when we're told that we will one day be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established, we can believe it because God is trustworthy. Jesus fulfilled all of his promises. We can trust him. Look at the gospel and look at what it means for us. So here's my hope for us today. My hope is that you have been challenged and that you've also been drawn toward Christ because of what we've talked about today. And my hope is that as we have been informed, we've also been transformed. That as we behold Him, we become like Him. And so I want to close today in two, two kinds of prayer. One, a prayer of just wonderful thanks to God. And second, a prayer for His help. Will you join me in those? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the beauty of Your Word and all of its nuance. We thank You for the beauty of Jesus and all of His victory and all that You accomplished through Him. And Lord, we recognize our deep and abiding need we need help with the Word. We need help to trust Jesus in all of our lives. Lord, we have specific burdens that need to be cast upon you even right now. Will you help us do that? Will you help us to do that this week? Would you help us to, to lean on you in a profound way so that the only explanation for our lives is that the Lord is with us? Lord, we pray that for ourselves as individuals. We pray that for ourselves as a church. And we seek what only you can do in our lives. In Jesus' good name, amen.